0: Hi, everyone. In today's recording, you'll hear a conversation between me and my wife, Claire Akebrand, about the poetry of the of Herbert. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will hopefully get you paying more attention to punctuation. But first, a quote about poetry. This is by the poet and novelist Thomas Hardy he said, poetry is emotion put into measure. The emotion must come by nature, but the measure can be acquired by art. I really like this a lot. I'm one of those old-fashioned people that thinks that poetry is meant to stir emotions. It's meant to speak to us on an emotional level. And those emotions are, they all come from our lived experiences. And I think Wordsworth is right when he defines poetry as A powerful feeling recollected in tranquility, right? Any poem that is devoid of emotion I don't think could ever become a truly great poem. However, as Thomas Hardy points out, emotion is not sufficient. This emotion has to be tamed or controlled or restrained or formalized or put into some kind of pattern, some kind of recognizable art form. And this is what can be taught. This is what a class like this is designed to do. I think Zbigniew of Herbert is a great example of this precept. His poems I find extremely emotional, but also very controlled, very artful, very measured. Uh, he may not write in strict rhythms and strict meters, but there's still a lot of measuring going on in his poems, a lot of formal restraint. So this measuring, this artfulness, this formal aspect that you lay on top of emotions or through which you turn your emotions into art, can take many, many forms. And to talk more about how Herbert does this, let's go into that chat between uh, me and Claire. Hello, everyone. Hello. Here I am with Claire Ekebrand, author of a book of poems called What Was Left of the Stars and a novel called The Field is White. (laughs) Yep. Available on Amazon. (laughs) Anything you want to say about that? Um, No. So today uh, we're talking about the poems of Zabigny of Herbert, a favorite poet of both of ours for a while now. And I propose we start by asking each other a kind of simple question to get the ball rolling here. And the question is, if you were in an elevator with someone and they asked you why Zabigny of Herbert poems are so good, what would you say? Of course, this is, I mean, you can't, how could you do justice to such a great poet in two minutes? But, you know, as a doorway into it, if you had to, like, create a two-minute sales pitch to summarize the pleasure of these poems, what would you say?
1: I would say that he is a poet who writes very serious poems, but that don't take themselves too seriously. So, he, he uses a lot of humor, subtle humor, and creates these personas that or at least one persona, Mr. Kajito. Yeah, to speak to talk about suffering in a way that feels innocent, while also at the same time being realistic. Yeah, and yeah, he uses humor, and not just dark humor that kind of makes you, um, I don't know, sad. <laughs> but yeah, there's this kind of innocence. Yeah, a playfulness.
0: Yeah, my version of my answer we didn't collaborate on a communal answer. We I tried to answer independently, but came up with something very similar. I kinda I, I said that he writes extremely emotional and moral poems disguised as utterances that are casual and familiar. He has a wild imagination, but also is grounded in the facts of history. And maybe the my most successful, not to say that this totally nails it, attempt at this elevator pitch is to say that he his poems have the wisdom of a kind of moral titan, but the innocence of a child. A child's love of beauty and of wonder. So I think the word parable is mm. maybe comes the closest to the genre that he's writing in. He writes a lot of parables. I mean, most of his prose poems look explicitly like parables. Maybe, mm-hmm. well, let's read one, actually. And... Um,
1: that is a good point. They do feel like parables often.
0: And you know, the parable is a very childlike genre, but contains contains a kind of bottomless wisdom to it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So they're easy to understand on the surface and easy also to dismiss as superficial or... Here's a good example of this parable style. And this isn't chosen at random per se, but... I I could have chosen 100 poems in this book that are just like this and that emphasize these qualities that Claire and I are talking about. Serious, so this is is a serious poem, like Claire says, but it doesn't sound serious on the surface. And I think it is a parable, yeah, in the way that it tells you a story with a kind of deep moral center. And so I'm going to read it, and then I'll ask Claire to interpret it.
1: Mm, Okay. (laughs) It's
0: called Chinese Wallpaper. A desert island with the sugary head of a volcano. In the middle of the level water, a fisherman with a line. reeds, Higher up, the island spreading like an apple tree, with a pagoda and a little bridge where lovers meet under the budding moon. If it ended here, it would be a pretty episode. The history of the world in a word or two. But this is repeated into infinity with senseless, stubborn precision the volcano, the lovers, the moon. There is no worse insult to the world.
1: That's a great last line. It's so good. Mm-hmm.
0: And it, 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 it doesn't it exemplify all of these traits that we've already introduced him by describing? Mm-hmm. It looks simple on the outside. It has this kind of childlike, a childlike love of the domestic and the familiar. hmm By the end of it, you get the sense that you're in the presence of someone deeply wise and moral.
1: Yeah, that last line is this huge authoritative statement, like an axiom or something. There's no worse insult to the world.
0: So if you had to, you know, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, what is the meaning of this parable? Wallpaper, you know, there's this pattern on wallpaper that is repeated. This little scene with these lovers under a moon and a pagoda. And if it, you know, so I'm just brutally paraphrasing. If this was just one picture, that would be fine. It would be, quote, a pretty episode, but it's repeated identically mm-hmm. for the whole stretch of this wall, right? You've seen patterns of wallpaper like this. And so Big of Herbert asserts that this is some kind of immensely immoral or anesthetic violation. Some kind of great offense is mm-hmm. being is being so so what is the offense here?
1: I think he's lamenting existence itself. He's saying existence seems like a huge moral offense, um, the way history repeats itself. You have the volcano, which he says sugary head, but it's this huge danger looming above the lovers. And the moon gives you this sense of um, a cycle too, of repetition. Mm. There's There seems to be a pattern that's set in stone.
0: Well, he says, but this is repeated into infinity with senseless, stubborn precision.
1: Right. Precision. Seems to be the
0: the reason that he objects to this.
1: Yeah, he, he, he seems to be lamenting maybe how little agency humans maybe have. They just kind of fall into these patterns and follow them precisely.
0: I wonder also if it's a kind of Ars Poetica poem in which he's asserting a kind of art that is morally reprehensible, that, the, that an art that is performed by rote There's no recipe to recreate a poem. You can't produce poems on a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. Art can't be produced on a conveyor belt. True. And to assume that it can is some kind of huge offense to the world, meaning to the subject matter. Like we artists, the the responsibility of artists, it's a moral responsibility is to praise the world. And we can't put that on autopilot. Mm -hmm. The world has to be treated. The world deserves individual, unrepeated, unautomatized praise i don't know
1: oh, i like that i like um the idea of writing in a way that's steps away from a certain pattern unlike this wallpaper and but also living a life that steps away from the certain pattern that we so easily fall into
0: well i wanted to read another poem it's called i think it because it, it kind of is another Ars poetica that kind of describes his style these aren't necessarily my favorite in the book but i think they might be good ways into his work This is called A Knocker. It's on page 78. There are those who grow gardens in their heads. Paths lead from their hair to sunny and white cities. It's easy for them to write. They close their eyes. Immediately schools of images stream down from their foreheads. My imagination is a piece of board. My sole instrument is a wooden stick. I strike the board. It answers me. Yes. Yes no no for others the green bell of a tree the blue bell of water i have a knocker from unprotected gardens i thump on the board and it prompts me with the moralist's dry poem yes yes no no i wanted to highlight this poem because i think he's he is onto something here in terms of describing his own style Where other people invent or pretend, he reduces himself to the bare minimum, in a way, the bare facts, saying, stating the obvious, yes, yes, no, no, right? And he calls this the moralist's dry poem. And I think this is a good, in part, it captures his style because in a world full of, I mean, he was growing up in occupied Poland and like Miłosz himself was another subject of, you know, tyrannies. And wars. So, in a world full of political lies and duplicity uh, and evil, political evil, he sees his job as to say, yes means yes and no means no.
1: There's no deception.
0: Yeah, there's absolutely no deception. That's right. I really like that. There's no deception. He's announcing, when I say yes in a poem, I mean yes. And when I say no in a poem, I mean no. Mm. So, he sees his poetry as being uh, the role of poetry as being highly moral. It prompts me with the moralist's dry poem. Yes, yes, no, no. So his poem does have a kind of distilled, transparent, minimalist, again, childlike comes to where it comes to mind. Mm-hmm. That kind of aesthetic. But I also think that he's selling himself a little bit short here when he says that these other poets have these wild imaginations and all they do is have all they have to do to write a poem is close their eyes. Mm-hmm. Because I think actually that he is one of the most wildly imaginative poets, mm-hmm. you know, in all world poetry, to be honest. He has this extremely surreal streak to his work. Mm-hmm. He's a real fantasist in a way, you know. He will inhabit and personify buttons and chairs and dwarves. And there's a kind of paradox here where he's asserting his poetry as ultra distilled and minimal and honest and yet. He combines that with an extremely fantastic imagination.
1: Mm -hmm. And it also goes back to what I was saying about um, serious poems that don't take themselves too seriously. He's obviously poking fun of himself. Yeah. He's like, other people see gardens and my imagination is a piece of board. Right. (laughs) I mean, That's tongue-in-cheek. Right. For sure. Yeah. And I like that a lot. I always like it when people... Don't try to make themselves look like uh, romantic poets. <laughs> I know, he
0: could have easily and and Miwosh Shayswan Miwo is a good example of this too. They could have responded to their time in history, their time and place in history by saying, I am a prophet.
1: I've seen things.
0: I have seen things. Listen to me, multitudes, yeah. for the wisdom of the muses, you know? Uh-huh. And it, and I mean,
1: people would just because of what they have seen, but... <laughs>
0: and they do contain wisdom and they are kind of guiding lights for their time in history, but they they always assert this role in a very tongue-in-cheek way. Mm-hmm. Very reluctant to, as you say, take themselves too seriously. Mm. Is that... Well, I, I have a question about politics and poetry. I mean, he, mm. his poems, I, I would say, aren't really political so much as they are deeply moral. I think the political poet has a kind of uphill battle because it's just way 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 too easy for a political poet to seem self-righteous and predictable Mm -hmm. and shrill and like he or she is preaching to the choir Mm -hmm. and asserting his or her own moral virtues and condemning other people's moral virtues right? right so do you have anything to say about how herbert avoids these pitfalls how does his poetry achieve a kind of deeply moral stance without? committing any of those mistakes like i said self-righteousness predictability shrillness
1: i think he trusts the image more than the commentary on the image say more about say more about that well he he lets the image uh, speak for itself and he doesn't um yeah I'm trying to think of a good image right now that he's used.
0: Well, I, I have an example. As soon as you said that, I thought, "Oh, it's just like in that one poem." Although you could find examples of this probably on every page. Yeah. I mean, the Chinese wallpaper poem that we read is a good example of this. Mm. There's almost no commentary. There's one sentence of commentary at the end. This is, and again, it's like the parable genre. That's what that that right. is. What characterizes the parable as a genre of writing where you just give the audience the images,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or Aesop's fables. I think would be another touchstone author for him. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of Aesop in him as a writer. I'm just going to give you these animals talking to each other, and the moral will either be self-evident or it won't be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm not going to comment. I'm not going to comment mm-hmm. on it. So this is a great example of what you mean. So you're just before I read this poem, just to recap what you said. The way that he avoids. The way that he writes moral poetry without political self-righteousness or moral self-righteousness or shrillness is to trust the image and to avoid adding extraneous and unnecessary commentary. Mm -hmm. I think the pebble is a great example of this. So this poem is called Pebble. It's on page 197. The pebble is a perfect creature, equal to itself, mindful of its limits, filled exactly with a pebbly meaning with a scent which does not remind one of anything, does not frighten anything away, does not arouse desire. Its ardor and coldness are just and full of dignity. I feel a heavy remorse when I hold it in my hand, and its noble body is permeated by false warmth. Pebbles cannot be tamed. To the end they will look at us with a calm and very clear eye. This is only an image. I mean, a pebble is being personified in a way that we're not used to, perhaps, but you can tell that this is a parable without the commentary, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Right. You can tell that there's a meaning looming or many meanings looming behind it.
0: And if he were to say, you know, so I could revise, I've done this before too in these recordings, but I could revise this so that it would be instantly worse. I could say, pebbles cannot be tamed. To the end, they will look at us with a calm and very clear eye. Thus, reader... I take them as the paragon of moral stability and firmness. They, unlike human beings, have a way of being loyal to the truth no matter what and unblinking in the face of barbarousness or suffering or lying. Mm. They will not blink if they are lied to by their nation or country. Mm -hmm. They hold fast forever. (laughs) End of poem. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he trusts, I think one way is that he trusts his images, Mm -hmm. as you say, and another way would be that he trusts the reader. Like he doesn't assume his reader is stupid and needs the commentary. Yeah. So there's kind of double layer of trust there. Yeah. And it's very simple too. Like, again, I think of a child when I read this poem, like, I do too. A child just picking up a rock and looking at it and praising it for being solid mm-hmm. and not subject to bend under persuasion or pressure mm-hmm. from the nation or, you know. Well, he has this quote <clears throat> that I wanted to read. I think this is from an interview. He says, this is the beginning of Herbert talking, It is vanity to think that one can influence the course of history by writing poetry. It is not the barometer that changes the weather. Wow. End of quote. That's good. Why do you like that?
1: I like the idea of um, poetry being a sort of measuring tool for history. It's not what changes history, but it is what reflects it.
0: Yeah, or records it. Yeah. And to to obligate poetry to change history is to fundamentally misunderstand its purpose.
1: Mm Mm-hmm yeah and it's uh it's it turns poetry into a very powerful tool, a very practical tool
0: right that that I, I like that too. It, it's not to say that poetry isn't important, right, or that poetry serves no purposes. It's just we can't confuse ourselves about what purposes it does indeed serve, and again, back to this vanity you're right you're absolutely right when you say that he doesn't take himself too seriously because he says it is vanity to think that we that poets can change history, so mm-hmm. let's not fall pray to that trap you know to think that we we have it within ourselves to correct the course of human civilization
1: mm-hmm. but to honestly record it
0: Like this pebble I mean to the end pebbles will look at us with a calm and very clear eye. So the job yeah. of a poet is to look at history with a calm and very clear eye mm-hmm. and to see it, just to see it yeah. and to not blink. Mm-hmm. At what you see.
1: And to not let it destroy you, to not yeah. let it change your character. Yeah. To look at it and remain unchanged.
0: Exactly. I think that's totally true because he says pebbles cannot be tamed, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who knows exactly if I'm reading this correctly. I, I don't even like phrasing it that way. But the way I experience that line is simply to say a person who is moral cannot be corrupted.
1: Mm-hmm
0: no matter how much pressure there is to corrupt, to become corrupted. Mm. So you mentioned at the beginning that his poems are humorous or contain humor, sometimes maybe dark humor, but not always dark humor, not a depressive humor necessarily. Do you, What do you think the relationship is between humor and poetry or humor and morality or humor and politics? Any of the topics we've been talking about so far?
1: I know a lot of poets that I love that don't use humor at all. Uh, for example, um, Paul Celan—he writes beautifully about yeah. about the Holocaust, very painfully. I mean, it's—and he doesn't use humor in the least.
0: And Rilke, is a poet, we both admire, who couldn't be more funny. <laughs> more unfunny. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's not—it's not like it's a requirement for me, but I do admire poets who who can do that, who can. Who don't um, leave out the, the fact that existence is abs- absurd and therefore funny. Yeah. Like you can't help but laugh at how absurd it all is.
0: I, and I do think that there is a relationship between morality and humor that Zabigny of Herbert exemplifies. I'll read a funny poem. I mean, I say funny, you're not going to laugh out loud at this poem. But <laughs> this poem is, what's the best word? Very lighthearted charmingly humorous. I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but it's called The Seventh Angel. So I'll just read this and we can talk about why a poet might choose humor. I don't even want to say irony because that can become too complicated of a word, but why a poet might choose humor to tackle very serious subjects. This is called The Seventh Angel. It's on page 96. The seventh angel is completely different. Even his name is different. Shemkel. He is no Gabriel, the Oriate, upholder of the throne, and Baldachin, and he's no Raphael, tuner of choirs. And he's also no Azriel, planet-driver, surveyor of infinity, perfect exponent of theoretical physics. Shemkel is black and nervous, and has been fined many times for illegal import of sinners between the abyss and the heavens. Without arrest, his feet go pit-a-pat. His sense of dignity is non-existent, and they only keep him in the squad out of consideration for the number seven. But he is not like the others, not like the hetman of the hosts Michael, all scales and feathery plumes, nor like as Raphael, interior decorator of the universe, warden of its luxuriant vegetation, his wings shimmering like two oak trees, not even like Dedriel, apologist and cabalist, Shemkel, Shemkel, the angels complain. Why are you not perfect? The Byzantine artists, when they paint all seven, reproduce Shemkel just like the rest, because they suppose they might lapse into heresy if they were to portray him, just as he is, black, nervous in his old threadbare nimbus. I mean, why why be funny in a poem like this? What's the advantage?
1: (laughs) It's hard to describe but i think um
0: it's so hard to describe
1: in this particular poem humor is an interesting tool to point out the flaws in other people who require perfection or who require uniformity so we're laughing at those people right
0: yeah i think that's right the the butt of the joke isn't shemkel but people who demand grandeur or perfection
1: Mm -hmm.
0: it's a kind of yeah. I mean, we'll get to this in a minute because this is actually a theme I wanted to pick up on, but maybe we've already answered this question in part to say that one way that he avoids self-righteousness is by undercutting himself, by insisting on the absurd and the humorous. He can he can avoid the accusation of asserting himself as anyone who is better than anyone else or extra prophetic. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of required to laugh at himself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's also a, a cope. I don't want to say coping mechanism because that sounds quite reductive, but I think there's something deeply moral about, I mean, if you buy into that myth of Sisyphus in which the only way that Sisyphus can endure eternity of pushing this boulder up this hill is by smiling at how absurd his predicament is. (laughs) There is, I mean, there's a kind of nihilistic and depressive reading of that allegory, but there is something wonderfully triumphant also about that to say like Not everything is lost. There is still something within my power. Mm -hmm. And there's a way of framing experiences that can take some of the suffering out of them. Some of -hmm. the suffering out of them. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to this idea of perfection, he is obsessed with this idea of perfection. For example, I won't read all of this poem, but it's on page 160. This is a poem called In the Studio. And this, this is just an excerpt from it. When God built the world, he wrinkled his forehead, calculated and calculated. Hence the world is perfect and impossible to live in. On the other hand, a painter's world is good and full of error. And th- this comes up in poem after poem. Why is perfection bad?
1: Like the Chinese wallpaper, things are repeated perfectly with precision. And that's bad and an insult to the world. The worst kind. Yeah. Yeah uniformity is bad
0: you, yeah I think that uniformity is bad right we want differences and differences will immediately create hierarchies of slightly better and slightly worse- mm-hmm. she, I mean shemkel is a great example of this like we we need shemkels in the world I mean I think one of the points one of the points of that poem I don't like that phrase but one of the things that that poem celebrates is humanity shemkel is I think a stand-in for humanity and our inability to live up to anything close to angelic status. But Shemkel is somehow better than the other angels because he's more real or more approachable or more human.
1: Yeah, and he stands out because of his flaws.
0: He stands out as different. Yeah. Is a perfect world, would a perfect world be impossible to live in? Is that something you agree with?
1: Well, that part is weird. I I mean, it feels true. The world obviously isn't perfect, right? So, I wonder
0: it, it it doesn't say this in the poem. It does talk this d- d- poem does talk about a gardener. It could be a kind of prelapsarian Garden of Eden world like that you know it depends on your interpretation of the book of Genesis, but it, if you say that the world that God created is the Garden of Eden and it was okay. corrupted by humans, then maybe yeah, you could say that world was perfect, and it's humans that messed it up, you know, so is the Garden of Eden? Right. Impossible to live in, probably. I mean,
1: yeah,
0: it's immensely boring because of the uniformity, like you
1: say. Yeah, emotionally, it would be impossible, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, well, it'd why? be extremely depressing and uh, repetitive, like the Chinese wallpaper.
0: Yeah, no differences. Is,
1: right, over and over the same thing, and. The worst part about repetition is that there's absolutely no imagination necessary. There's nothing yeah, creative about it.
0: That had not occurred to me either, but I really like that. There's nothing left for us to contribute. Exactly. It makes humans redundant, you know, and superfluous. Right. If the world is perfect, then why are we necessary? What can we offer? What can we fix or polish or beautify? Nothing. Right. And Sounds so, terrible. And suddenly we're un un unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And as you say, just too, like the monotonies. there's another poem that gets at this perfection idea and I've lost it here. Oh, here, it's on page 214. It's called Anything Rather Than an Angel. Again, think of Shemkel, you know? So this is Anything Rather Than an Angel. If after our death, they want to transform us into a tiny withered flame that walks along the paths of wind, we have to rebel. What good is an eternal leisure on the bosom of air in the shade of a yellow halo amid the murmur of two-dimensional choirs? One should enter rock, wood, water, the cracks of a gate. Better to be the creaking of a floor than shrilly, transparent perfection. I really love that.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And so strange. I would have never thought of the image of entering rock, wood, water, the cracks of a gate, or it being the cre- the creaking of a floor, in contrast to perfection. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's because it feels like a type of captivity, right? It would be better to be trapped than unleashed into this awful eternity.
0: Well, I think the shrilly transparent perfection, transparent. I take. To mean like it has no character.
1: Again, no use, no need for imagination.
0: Yeah, nothing about it stands out. Whereas like the creaking of a floor, you think, oh, it has a voice. It has a, mm. it has character. You know, it it has texture. Mm-hmm. And he's obsessed with entering things, entering the rock. Yeah. That pebble poem, you know, he wants right. to become the pebble. Mm-hmm. It's a poem about armchairs. He imagines, he personifies armchairs, buttons, hands. You know, he's always
1: embodying something.
0: There's a kind of pantheistic That's what I that's what I meant at the beginning when I said he sells himself a little bit short when he or he's speaking slightly tongue-in-cheek when he says, I am a poet of yes, yes, no, no, because that's true on one hand, but on the other hand, his spirit is always being poured into objects. I'll pour mm-hmm. my spirit into that object and into that object and into that object. I wanted to read so he he reminds me of what Keats calls the chameleon poet, and I wanted to remind you of this quote from Keats. Keats says So this is in a letter Keats is describing the poetical character, quote, as to, as to the poetical character itself, I mean that sort of which, if I am anything, I am a member, that sort distinguished from the Wordsworthian or egotistical sublime, which is a thing per se and stands alone. It is not itself, meaning the poetical character is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character. It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. It does no harm from its relish of the dark side of things, any more from its taste for the bright one, because they both end in speculation. A poet is the most unpoetical of anything in existence because he has no identity. He is continually in for and filling some other body: the sun, the moon, the sea, and men and women, who are creatures of impulse, are poetical and have about them an unchangeable attribute. The poet has none, no identity. He is certainly the most unpoetical of all God's creatures. And Keats, of course, wasn't reading *Zabignia* of Herbert. Herbert comes a hundred years later, but or more. But I'm. This is a great reading of *Zabignia* of Herbert, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. So beginning of Herbert is constantly pouring himself into other bodies, the sun, the moon, the sea, men, women, objects. He invents this persona called Mr. Kajito, you know, that kind of dominates the later poems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you make of Mr. Cogito? Why, Why create a persona and sustain it across many poems? Who is this persona? What is achieved by doing this? What are the risks of doing it?
1: Well, I think he is... There's something playful about that again. It's kind of, it has this, um, it feels like a kind of game. So it comes with a sense of innocence almost.
0: Yeah. I mean, sorry to interrupt you. I want you to keep no, going, sorry. but it, it's, it's exactly the kind of thing a kid would do. Like today mm-hmm. I'm not myself. I'm this other thing. Mm-hmm. Or I have an imaginary friend mm-hmm. who's kind of like me, but not really like me.
1: Mm-hmm. It's playful. It's, uh, are, were you going to read this poem, Mr. Kojito Reflects on Suffering?
0: I can read it. Do you want to read it?
1: No, you read it.
0: Okay, I'll read it. But and it, it. You want to talk about it?
1: Well, yeah, it has a quote in it that goes along with what I wanted to say.
0: So this is Mr. Kojito Reflects on Suffering, page 279. All attempts to avert the so-called cup of bitterness by mental effort, frenzied campaigns on behalf of stray cats, breathing exercises, religion... <laughs> This is funnier than the Shem Kelp. I have to start again. Mister Kajito reflects on suffering. All attempts to avert the so-called cup of bitterness, by mental effort, frenzied campaigns on behalf of stray cats, breathing exercises, religion, let you down. You have to consent. Gently bow your head, not wring your hands. Use suffering mildly with moderation, like a prosthetic limb, without false shame but without pride also. Don't brandish your stump over other people's heads. Don't knock your white cane on the panes of the well-fed. Drink an extract of bitter herbs, but not to the dregs. Be careful to leave a few gulps for the future. Accept it, but at the same time, isolate it in yourself, and if it is possible, make from the stuff of suffering a thing or a person play with it. Of course, play, joke around with it very solicitously as with a sick child cajoling in the end with silly tricks, a wan smile.
1: That's so awesome. Say why he's not taking himself too seriously. Like he's also showing us how not to do that. Like the so-called cup of bitterness, right? He's like, let's not call it the cup of bitterness. Let's call it a prosthetic limb, (laughs) which is like uh, that other poem with some poets see gardens, but my imagination is a board. So he is immediately exchanging one very dramatic image for an awkward, silly one.
0: Right. Silly is a good word. There is a kind of wonderful, sublime silliness to his poems.
1: Right. Which, at the end... Can um, trick us into a a wan smile.
0: Yeah, and he even I'm just noticing now he even uses the word silly or his translator does. Yeah, cajoling in the end with silly tricks.
1: Right. So yeah, it's it seems like that's what he wants to do for us. Maybe it's not an ecstatic smile like, you know, we're not laughing with our whole gut about suffering, but it's like. Yeah, this is this is absurd and this is kind of funny. Like well, <laughs> it's that
0: truism that, you know, in a time of crisis comedians are extra valuable, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. That line
0: in Byron, I la- if I laugh it is so that I may not weep. Right. right? there's there is something there is a, a deep relationship between humor and suffering or humor and morality. And I think this is just such a great antidote an- antidote to a mentality that we can that all of us fall victim to from time to time, where something bad happens to us, we're suffering, and we can kind of drown in self-pity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that wonderful part of the Iliad that you love, too, where in later in the book, Achilles has this moment of self-realization where he looks back and says, I was so consumed by my anger, I didn't want to let go of it because it became as sweet to me as honey.
1: Oh, Yeah. I know. So there
0: is something, there is this aspect of suffering that can become toxically sweet, Mm -hmm. and that we love poking and stoking, and and
1: I know. But be careful to leave a few gulps for the future.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And he says, don't brandish your stump over other people's heads, like.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You have a stump. You have been amputated in some way, <laughs> emotionally, physically, psychologically. But guess what? So has everyone else. Mm-hmm. So this isn't going to get you very far.
1: I know. And I love that. Without pride also, because th- we can't. I know. I mean, I have done this and I know people that have yeah. taken great pride in their suffering.
0: That's what, exactly right.
1: And it becomes like the suffering competition. Like right. Facebook can be a suffering yeah. competition <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or no. social media.
0: But the best, most moral, most psychologically healthy, healthy thing to do with it is to play with it.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah, he emphasized,
0: like, what, a, what a great emphasis. Of course, play.
1: Of course, yeah.
0: Joke around with it.
1: Yeah, and that's beautiful. I mean, with a sick child, I mean, who doesn't want to make a sick child smile? That's so right? good.
0: That's so good.
1: That's like one's first impulse. Yeah. And it's so beautiful that he's saying like as a poet, well, as a, as a human make the sick children smile. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying like he's the adult and his readers are the children, but
0: well, he's he everybody's child
1: the children. <laughs>
0: and adult, like he is his own, he's the child suffering and the adult making himself laugh to feel True. better. You know yeah. what I mean? Here's a great example. I won't read all of this poem. I'll read the first little chunk. This is page 404. It's called Mr. Kajito on the need for precision. And I'm reading this poem because I think it's a great example of him looking He's like a pebble looking at suffering with an unblinking eye. So he's not ignorant to suffering, but he's treating it in a way that is playful. That's that's the best option he has.
1: Hmm.
0: Mr. Kajito and the need for precision. Mr. Kajito is disturbed by a problem in the field of applied mathematics. It's already (laughs) funny. The difficulties we stumble on when performing simple arithmetical calculations. It's easy for children just to add apple to apple subtract grain from grain, the sum adds up, the world's kindergarten pulses with safe warmth. Particles of matter are measured, the heavenly bodies are weighed, and only in human affairs a criminal neglect runs rampant, a deficit of precise data. A specter is haunting the map of history, the specter of indeterminacy. How many Greeks perished at Troy? We don't know. How to give the exact losses on both sides in the battle of Quagemala, Agincourt, Leipzig, Kutno, and also the number of victims of the white terror, the red, the brown. Ah, colors. Innocent colors. We don't know. We really don't know. Mr. Kajito rejects the sensible explanation that it was a long time ago. Wind mixed up the ashes. The blood ran into the sea. Sensible explanations deepen Mr. Kojito's disturbance, for even what happens before our noses eludes figures, loses its human dimension. It must be a flaw somewhere, a fatal defect of instruments, or a failure of memory. The poem goes on, but I love this childlike approach to the genocides of the world you know the genocides of history how do you what would a child just learning basic arithmetic do could we add up the dead i don't know maybe Mm. and then you suddenly realize no there's no way Mm. the sum of the dead cannot be added up we don't know we really don't know i love what he says about our colors innocent colors that have been named that have been used to name these terrors Mm
1: -hmm.
0: throughout history like a child's most precious what tools, you know, to beautify the world are also used to describe these horrible things. Mm -hmm. So he's a poet who comes to the facts of history, the ugly facts of history with a child's curiosity and a child's innocence and a child's unwillingness to lie. Mm. But also a child's playfulness, like you said, a child's playfulness. So a child's curiosity, a child's innocence, a child's unwillingness to lie and a child's playfulness. I'm now refining my elevator pitch. This is what I would say to a person if I only had two minutes. <laughs> this is why his poetry is good, right?
1: Mm.
0: I hate getting academic, but Cogito, of course, comes from the famous Descartes, Cogito Ergo Sum. I think, therefore, I am. So any speculations as to why he's choosing this name for his doppelganger, his his double persona? What, what is this double persona like? Who is Mr. Cogito... We never really answered the question as to why, as a poet, you might want to do this play. You did partly answer it, because it's a playful way to get at certain ugly truths. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there are other answers to this question, but if you have anything else to say.
1: It it almost looks like he is taking human suffering and humanity and turning it into a children's book. I never thought of that, yeah. Simplifying it, boiling it down to, like, one person, the one thinker, who... Um, things and therefore he is and suffers.
0: Yeah. Like.
1: And Mr. Kojito sounds like such a child child's approach, right?
0: It's a very yeah. It's a very kind of like see spot run see Mr. Kojito run run Mr. Kojito yeah. run. You know so
1: yeah.
0: It's this kind of like avatar. Mm, yeah. This like stick figure that he puts a- into these situations. Yes, you know? that's
1: what I picture actually. That's interesting. Pi- I I yeah, stick figure. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And it has this kind of creepy um, feel to it, almost like uh, hearing a kid's lullaby in the wrong setting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Does that make sense?
0: Uh, elaborate.
1: I don't know. It's like this innocent sort of music, and like for example, like a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's an innocent tone and very simplified language, but we're talking about human suffering. Like. Yeah holocausts
0: so you might want to again you you need counterbalancing spices in a poem if yeah. one way to tackle various serious subjects with, subjects without seeming self-righteous or preachy is you must include some kind of counterbalancing spice of levity silliness humor mm-hmm. so I'll invent this stick fi- I'll invent this stick figure and like push him out into the world I once saw this animation, I think you could find this on YouTube, but these AI people invented this algorithm, this like basic artificial intelligence machine that was a stick figure that was learning how to walk and it was living in this virtual realm and it would like bump into obstacles and it would have to like learn from all of us, all of these virtual obstacles, how to walk and it's very wobbly. Like, it looks like this little baby walking through the world. Mm-hmm. That's what I think of about these Mr. Cogito poems. It's like, I'm going to send this, base, this very basic walking thing out into the world and watch what happens when he bumps into the hard edges of existence <laughs> and <laughs> falls funny. over and falls over and falls over.
1: Mm. And I just thought, too, of Picasso's Guernica. Like, if you had a picture of that exact scene versus the painting itself... I think something really interesting happens in that painting, where when he takes the more primitive slash childlike approach to that kind of suffering, and has these very simple.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that a lot.
1: Yeah, there's. It's more tragic. It's like uh, uh, Herbert is saying, "What if a child looked at right at these kinds of tragedies?"
0: Yeah. Like, the world should be a place where a child can look at it and make sense of it. hmm So when you put the child goggles on and look at the world, the, the that innocent lens makes the tragedy starker.
1: Right. Like, he's trying to figure out a math problem. The math problem of, of how many people died. Yeah. That's, that's heartbreaking. It's not the only way to write about suffering, but it's one that's his very... Powerful way.
0: We should talk a little bit more about craft I think well this is a writing class after all so on the level of craft or technique or style, what can be emulated? What can we learn? What is he exceptionally good at? What is he a good model of?
1: I think he uses very ordinary images very well. A pebble a pebble yeah, yeah. he uses time or I should say timeless images. A lot of timeless images that.
0: Yeah, I like that. I I half invented this quote where I have Mary Oliver saying that her audience when she writes poems is a thirteenth century Albanian boy. She didn't exactly say that, but I've <laughs> I've been misquoting her so long now that wow. in my mind she has said that. <laughs> but I think the point is that like she writes about him, he and Herbert too, writes about things that will be understood by any human in any culture pretty much any time. I mean, there might be like a car or a tank or a phone or, yeah. you know, things that tie him to a certain time or place. But mostly, mm-hmm. yeah, it's rivers, pebbles, mountains, very...
1: Wood and glass and fire.
0: Yeah, elemental. That was the word I was looking yeah. for, fire. Yeah, very elemental. So he he achieves a sense of universal through his focus on the elemental. I really like that answer.
1: He can teach me how to take myself less seriously. Which is important. Yeah. What not about... to try to make myself look like some kind of um, chosen <laughs> vessel.
0: I think that's totally true. I'm actually, I, I'm not disagreeing with your ass- assessment that he focuses on simple images like pebbles. Yeah. But he is equally good at saying things like, this is in a poem called Prayer of the Traveler, Mr. Kajito, which I wish we could read. We're kind of running out of time here, oh, I guess. That's but it's
1: one of his best, yeah.
0: It's one of his best poems let me just read a few chunks. So it begins by him saying, Lord, I thank you for creating the world beautiful and various. I thank you that works created for your greater glory yielded to me particles of their mystery, and that with great presumption I thought that Duccio, Van Eyck, and Bellini painted for me also. And then he, I'm skipping, he also goes on to say, and take under your protection Mama from Spaleto. Spiridion from Paxos, the good student from Berlin who saved me from oppression, and then when met unexpectedly in Arizona, drove me to the Grand Canyon, which is like a hundred thousand cathedrals standing on their heads. Let me understand other people, other languages, other sufferings, and above all, let me be humble, that is to say, one who longs for the source.
1: Hmm.
0: I thank you, Lord, for creating the world beautiful and various. And if this is your seduction, I am seduced for good and past all forgiveness. It's one of the best endings, I think, in in his work, but mm. for, for as many times as he can make a pebble or a chair or a hen, something basic seem beautiful, he can pull out something like the Grand Canyon, which is like a hundred thousand cathedrals standing on their heads. Mm. So he's extremely good at dazzling metaphors and images, too.
1: yeah. And I love how at the end, again, he do, he keeps himself humble by saying, I thank you, Lord, for creating the world. Um, and if this is your seduction, I am seduced for good and past all forgiveness. So it's not like, <laughs> and therefore, I'm your perfect disciple.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or only I know the real beauty of the world, or I have eyes to see the beauties of creation. It's a kind of...
1: Yeah, he very charmingly turns it into a weakness.
0: A weakness. Yeah, I'm. I'm too. You won me over. I wish I could with, withstand. Yeah, <laughs> the seduction, but I can't. Oh,
1: it's beautiful.
0: So, focus on elementals. Look at the world like a child. This. Okay. So, just to backpedal a little bit, this is the checklist for writers who wish they could aspire to something as good as the beginning of Herbert. Focus on elementals. Look at the world like a child. Trust that the images you're choosing are vivid enough that they don't really need your commentary. Also, trust your readers. Turn things onto yourself, right? So, talk about yourself in a tongue-in-cheek way. Mm -hmm. Play. Be playful. Don't take your suffering too seriously. If you want to write a poem about suffering, I would really highly recommend that you, inside the poem, not take your suffering seriously. That you play with it. Mm -hmm. That you treat it in a kind of silly way. Uh, also on this list of how to aspire to write like Zbigniew of Herbert, try to pour yourself into, he's a kind of compassion or empathy machine, right? The ultimate chameleon. Try to pour your mind and your imagination into other vessels. Be a stone, be a chair, be a button, be wood, be glass.
1: And then don't explain why you are.
0: Yeah. We haven't said anything about punctuation I think we should. Let's talk for a little bit about punctuation and then I want to read my maybe my favorite poem by him. So we're wrapping things up here, but we can't not talk about punctuation. That's one of the most distinct things about his whole style.
1: For me, it makes me pause and read more slowly. Yeah. Because I have to. Yeah. Not and not
0: only read slowly but reread. Yeah. Sometimes you'll you'll kind of like get three or four words down the poem and you realize that a new sentence has started. Mm-hmm. But there was no period, so you need to kind of go back and reread, which can get annoying. How how are you not annoyed, though, when that happens? How, how does he, like, if he is God and you are him in this poem, how, do you, how does he make you fall for his seduction?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it has something to do, again, with that innocence, with the childlike mm. quality of his tone.
0: Our son has been sending the most adorable <laughs> emails. Why don't you read The Good Folks, one of his recent emails? Oh, okay. Just as an example. Okay, let's see. So he got, our son Isaac is seven. He's about to turn eight in a few weeks. And he got this Chromebook from his elementary school and is learning Gmail and is sending us unprompted uh, emails without our help. And so...
1: And I have to work with him on every single, every step of the way. Anyway, um, at the very end, like two minutes after we had finished homeschool, he sent me an email that said... And this is all lowercase, <laughs> oh, no punctuation. It, yeah, no
0: periods, no yeah. nothing.
1: I know that school was hard, but I still love you.
0: <laughs> so it does It does give the poems a sense of, yeah, like, I am pre, pu- this is a mind that is speaking pre-punctuation. I'm literate, but I'm innocent enough to not have learned punctuation yet. These are just utterances.
1: But they are very important utterances, and I needed to say them right now
0: yeah just like this email
1: yeah and obviously these are very sophisticated poems i mean he's got line breaks and very deliberate stanza breaks so it doesn't feel it doesn't feel careless in the least it feels very deliberate
0: but it does feel you're right it's not careless but it does take the poems to a place that seems to lie outside of i was about to say outside of form
1: outside of perfectionism
0: outside of perfectionism
1: but not exactly, because it's very deliberate.
0: Outside of overdetermination, maybe. That's a kind of clunky way, but that's the best I can come up with right now. It gives the poems a sense of or- organicness. You know what I mean? So they, they do have a formal integrity. And I wouldn't say that the line breaks are random or arbitrary. I'm sure they were deliberated over. But you know what I mean? They The, the fact that there is no punctuation also makes the poems look more organic and spontaneous. Yeah. That's what I mean, a place outside of being overdetermined.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And in 30 seconds, what advice would you give to a poet who is experimenting with taking punctuation out of his or her poems? What could go wrong?
1: (laughs) Well, I think the greatest danger is that it will either look like you're being gimmicky by assuming you're above. (laughs) Gimmicky, for sure. Above punctuation, or you're trying to look experimental. There's nothing wrong with being experimental, but... It could look like you're just skipping it for the sake of being above yeah. conventions.
0: Or that you picked poetry because poets get to break rules. Yeah. And you like being one of those cool kids.
1: Yeah. I mean, breaking rules is fun, but you don't want to just do it for the sake of it. <laughs>
0: but I think eight times out of ten, it comes across as not mature, but...
1: Trend following.
0: Trend following, precisely. Yeah. A desire to be popular.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think the content, I think there's absolutely poems in which it is appropriate, if that's the wrong word, but where it seems organic to not have punctuation.
0: Because there are poems of childlike innocence and joy and unflinchingness and spontaneity. Exactly. This might be, again, I could never choose one poem that I think is better than all of the other poems, even though I'm kind of asking you... Who, students who are taking this class to do that, I fully r- realize that that's kind of semi-futile and arbitrary practice. But we do have to make aesthetic judgments, I think, and assert that some poems are better than others. This poem is certainly better than, I think, most. I, well, let me say this. It's as good as any other poem in this book. I'll put it that way. There might be poems that are as good. There might be many poems this good. I don't think there are poems in this book that are better. The Envoy of Mr. Cogito. It's on page 333. And I'm man enough to admit that in preparation for this recording, while I was rereading these, I read this poem and almost teared up alone in a room. I think it's so moving and so beautiful. Uh, this is how we'll finish the recording. This is called The Envoy of Mr. Kajito. Go where the others went before, to the dark boundary, for the golden fleece of nothingness, your last reward. Go upright among those who are down on their knees those with their backs turned, those toppled in dust. You have survived, not so that you might live. You have little time. You must give testimony. Be courageous. When reason fails you, be courageous in the final reckoning. It is the only thing that counts, and your helpless anger May it be like the sea, whenever you hear the voice of the insulted and beaten. May you never be abandoned by your sister, scorn for informers, executioners, cowards. They will win. Go to your funeral with relief. Throw a lump of earth. A woodworm will write you a smooth-shaven life. And do not forgive. In truth, it is not in your power to forgive in the name of those betrayed at dawn. Beware, however, of overweening pride. Examine your fool's face in the mirror. Repeat, I was called. Was there no one better than I? Beware of dryness of heart. Love the morning, spring, the bird with an unknown name, the winter oak, the light on a wall, the splendor of the sky. They do not need your warm breath. They are there to say, no one will console you. Keep watch. When a light on a hill gives a sign, rise and go, as long as the blood is still turning the dark star in your breast. Repeat humanity's old incantations, fairy tales, and legends, for that is how you will attain the good you will not attain. Repeat great words. Repeat them stubbornly, like those who crossed a desert and perished in the sand. For this they will reward you with what they have at hand, with the whip of laughter, with murder on a garbage heap. Go, for only thus will you be admitted to the company of cold skulls, to the company of your forefathers, Gilgamesh, Hector, Roland, the defenders of the kingdom without bounds, and the city of ashes. Be faithful. Go.
1: It's beautiful.
0: Maybe let's not give any commentary to this poem. It's just so, so obviously beautiful. Yeah. And powerful, and we'll just let it speak for itself. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Isn't
1: that poem so gorgeous, though? Oh, it's beautiful. Turning dying into an honorable thing.
0: It's too good for words. I have no idea what to say about that poem. Now it's time for the writing prompt. You probably instantly notice, as soon as you begin reading Zbigniew of Herbert, that most of his poems have no punctuation. This writing prompt isn't really designed to get you started on a new poem of your own as much as it is meant to help you learn to distinguish what happens to the same words, the same lines, the same stanzas when you play around with punctuation. So it's a kind of compare and contrast exercise. I think as poets, we sometimes think that there are no rules and so we can do anything we want which is in a sense true, but the best poets always know what effect they are after and what stylistic choices on the page will help them achieve that effect. So we need to learn by practice what effect we're having on readers when we take punctuation out of a poem or when we add it into a poem. So for this exercise, take a poem that you know. This can be a poem that you love by somebody else. It can be a poem by you that you've already written, but it has to be punctuated normally, right? It has to have commas and periods, etc. Take this poem and retype it all without the punctuation take all the punctuation out, and then reread it out loud and see what happens. Does the poem seem softer or louder, angrier, happier, faster, slower, more restrained, more eager? Certainly something is different about the whole tone and mood and speed and reading experience of the poem. Try to put words to those differences. What exactly changed? You can do this writing prompt in reverse. You can take one of Zabigny of Herbert's poems that does not have any punctuation and put periods when you can tell you're at the end of a sentence or put commas in places where you know there should be commas. Go through the whole poem and punctuate it as if it's prose and then read it out loud and do the same thing. Try to put names to the effect that the addition of punctuation has on the reading experience of this poem. Something definitely is going to change. If you do this a few times, you'll get the hang of it. You'll you'll be able to predict, oh, if I want to have this effect on the reader, maybe I need to punctuate here, or maybe I need to drop the punctuation here. One recommendation, of course, I would have, and you saw this from Herbert, is that I think you either need to go with all, all standard punctuation or no punctuation at all. It's probably going to throw readers off if you have the first half of your poem punctuated normally and then suddenly drop it for no reason that might not work necessarily because you could be violating a contract that you set up with your reader at the very beginning of your poem. You need to announce in the first couple of stanzas, this is a poem with no punctuation, or this is a poem in which we punctuate normally. And to conclude, I'd like to read an elegy for Zabigny of Herbert written by Seamus Heaney. This poem is called To the Shade of Zbigny of Herbert. You were one of those from the back of the north wind, whom Apollo favoured and would keep going back to in the winter season. And among your people you remained his herald whenever he'd departed, and the land was silent and summer's promise thwarted. You learnt the lyre from him and kept it tuned. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Stay tuned for the next one, which will be, I think, between me and one of you about the poetry of W.B. Yeats. And I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep enjoying the readings, keep writing, and don't forget that you have what it takes to become a great poet.